Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Sarah is off today. I'm Steve Hayes. This Dispatch Podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, uh, where you'll also see an opportunity to join The Dispatch as a member. And make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Today, I'm joined by my dispatch colleagues, Andrew Egger and Declan Garvey, uh, two of the, the main driving forces behind our daily morning newsletter, The Morning Dispatch. We have a broad conversation about woke culture and its impact from the classroom to the newsroom. And we dive into some of Andrew and Declan's work from Trump superfans to the empathy gap in the 2020 election. Jacqueline, Andrew, it's good to have you with us. Um, we are doing this in part due to popular demand. We have had um, emails now for quite some time from our dispatch members urging us to let you out of your cages, as Jonah might say, and to, to have you on the podcast. So it's good to, it's good to have you here. I thought the way that I would begin um, was very briefly, we, we want to be informative but not self-indulgent here, ask you a little bit about yourselves and uh, how you came to join uh, the dispatch. So why don't we start with you, Andrew? Uh, yeah, well, well, hi, Steve. Thanks for thanks for having us on the podcast um, for for the inaugural time. It's nice to to know that we can be trusted to to speak and not just and not just uh, put words up on the internet. Um, uh, I I'm from St. Louis. I uh, have lived in D.C. since 2017 when I came out here uh, right after college to work for the Weekly Standard, um, which uh, I figured I would probably work there for 40 years, and that that option was not uh, not presented to me. Actually, in fact. Um, and, uh, came, went, went over to, uh, to the bulwark for, uh, it actually just occurred to me. Um, I feel like I worked there for a long time and just came here, but I worked for the bulwark about nine months until, uh, you guys hired me over here and I've now been here about nine months. This is actually, a uh, that, that just was wild to me to, to, to think about. We've already been months. doing this. Wow. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> so I've already been doing that this long. Um, but, uh, have five siblings, um, play the guitar. That's uh, that's me. I I'm happy to be here. Well, good. We're happy to have you. And Declan, how about you? What was your long and circuitous career path, life path uh, to the dispatch? Yeah, it's uh, very very long, very circuitous. Um, I I had been kind of a a, a big fan of of your work and, and Jonah's work um, for for years. And when I when I heard about the the possibility of of what you guys are putting together, I started, you know, sending increasingly desperate emails to that Hayes Goldberg 2019 Gmail um, <laughs> uh, address that you guys set up. And, um, you know, thank God you guys, you guys found one of them and, uh, and got back to me and um, kind of started the, started the process from there. But I, I, when I started in October was completely new to, to journalism. I had done some writing for my college paper, but um, my first job out of, out of college was, um, uh, consulting here in DC. And so I was working with, uh, different companies and, and, um, and, uh, ways to, that they were looking to, uh, kind of improve their, their presence and, and brand it here in DC. And so, um, eventually wanted to, to make a shift more towards journalism. And, and this was kind of the, the perfect 
um, the perfect place for, for me to find myself. I'm from Chicago originally, oldest of four, not five, but, um, and I'm actually headed back there tomorrow, which I'm very excited about, but, um, it's been a, been a incredible nine months, I guess, since, uh, since we got started here. We do have, um, we might be, be accused of, of, of over-representing the Midwest. We have lots of, of Midwesterners on our staff. Of course, I think that's a good thing, being from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, well, there was a substantive reason that I wanted to have you uh, on with, with us this week. And it has to do with uh, what we're seeing, the, the kinds of changes we're seeing in, in our society in the wake of the, the killing of George Floyd. And then in particular, sort of a week or two on, the, the kinds of uh, things that we're seeing in our institutions, in major um, companies, in the media that are being sparked or provoked by people in your generation. Um, some of them, I think many of us would regard as positive. Some of them, I think many of us regard as, as not positive um you brought us on to stand trial for the crimes of our generation. i am about to grill you like you've never been grilled before you are now speaking for the woke generation and you have a lot to answer you couldn't for. have picked two two better guys to, to two, represent two us. more yeah. woke two more woke youngins no I'm, I'm particularly interested in 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 what happened at, at the new york times and and we we engaged on this subject with some reluctance we don't like to talk about the media too much, but I think this is actually a pretty interesting story and one that you are, you both are in a unique position maybe to, to shed some light on. Just to, to give our listeners a little background, um, New York Times uh, commissioned an op-ed from Tom Cotton about the prospective use of the military on uh, our streets here in the United States to clear away rioters and looters. Um, um, that's an oversimplification, but that was basically his argument. We should be willing to use the military to do that if the unrest grew, if the rioting and looting grew. Um, this caused great uh, internal angst at the New York Times. Almost immediately there were tweets being sent by New York Times staffers saying that the mere publication of this op-ed was a threat to the lives of their black colleagues. There was an internal uh, petition circulated that had, I believe ended up with more than 800 signatures of New York Times employees saying that the piece, in effect, the piece should never have run. Subsequently led to a lot of um, gnashing of teeth and um, internal um, hand-wringing. Uh, A.G. Salzberger, the publisher of the New York Times, initially defended the publication of the op-ed, then later retracted that, said that he was sorry that they had published the op-ed. James Bennett, the uh, editorial page editor at the New York Times, was uh, well, resigned uh, from the paper uh, to be replaced. And a lot of this happened because of what uh, folks at the New York Times have described as for two different cultures at the paper. Um, on the one hand, a, a, a very strong, young, what might be described as woke culture, um, driven by people in, in your age cohort. And then a more sort of classic, um, cl I will say classically liberal 
um, group that's led by, to the extent that it's an organized group, led by people who are, are much older and were raised in different traditions of liberal expression, uh, smaller liberal expression, um, battle of ideas, what have you. So here we are. And the, the New York Times has implemented some new policies. There's a new editorial page editor, 41-year-old young woman who came from the Boston Globe. And they're, they're in the process of implementing some measures to, in effect, get sign-off from um, the younger staffers and others before they publish an op-ed that might cause people concerns. Are you guys to blame for this? I mean, is this your, (laughs) is cancel culture your fault, Uh, Declan and and Andrew? Is this, is this, uh, should we point the finger of blame at you? Now, I I have to say before I actually ask the question, you come from very different academic backgrounds. Um, Declan, you went to Harvard, which is well known for its sort of wokeness, campus wokeness. And Andrew, you went to Hillsdale College, very good liberal arts school in, um, Southern Michigan, which is, shall we say, not known for its <laughs> campus wokeness, a conservative yeah. school. So let me start with with Declan. Is what we're seeing sort of the natural outgrowth of the, the campus politics and the campus fights that we've seen over the past 10, 15 years? Uh, I mean, it, it's a great question. And, you know, it's that's kind of been plaguing uh, universities like like Harvard, you know, known Kremlin as the Charles or Kremlin on the Charles, um, you know, conservative commentators have long kind of pointed to to Harvard and, and schools like it as as kind of a boogeyman of this is what's coming up the pipeline. This is, um, you know, this is kind of how uh, how the younger generation is, is thinking about these things. And you know, the kind of I'll make one point, which is. You know that what the protests that we've seen in over the past couple of weeks point to the fact that there you know are these systemic injustices that have you know long been overlooked, and to to some degree, um, some of that some of the campus wokeness, quote unquote, is is pointing towards that and is trying to raise awareness towards that. There are excesses though, and and I think we saw that with um, what happened at the New York Times last week, and I and yes, I, I, I do think that you know. Very, very similar um, uh, events played themselves out while I was on campus in, in, in Cambridge. I remember one; uh, she must have been two years older than me. Published an, an op-ed in the campus newspaper, um, calling for uh, affirmative action to be based on socioeconomic uh, and income status rather than race. And it was, you know, it, I don't necessarily agree with every aspect of the op-ed, much like I don't with the, the Tom Cotton op-ed in the New York Times. Um, but this student who, you know, was 19, 20 years old at the, at the time was pilloried um, on campus. There were posters with her name uh, and face put up around campus calling for her to um, never have a platform at, at the at the school newspaper again or, um, uh, you know, the, and this happened the year that it was published, but three years later, she was still being um, brought up uh, as an example of of, of something that um, can't happen on campus, that can't um, can't be allowed to 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 exist. And there were other examples. We there was one. A couple of friends and I pushed back on one of them. The uh, it was around Thanksgiving. Um, 
it must have been my junior year and uh and the the school administration the school diversity board uh, put these placemats um on the tables of every dining hall uh, on campus and the placemats had basically the gist of them was here's how to talk to your racist family when you go back to uh, when you go back home for Thanksgiving about the social justice issues um, fa- plaguing our society. And it, it, <laughs> we, we printed out our own placemats and put them out the, the following week. It was, here's how to have open and free dialogue on campus and, and talk to people who disagree with you. Um, and we got the administration to apologize and, the, and they retracted it. Um, but, you know, the, there is kind of this, this very real sense on, uh, on campus that, um, that ideas are are increasingly being seen as as violence as um, as uh, a, a means of um, inflicting harm when in, in you know in fact that they are just ideas and and so obviously uh, those ideas can can grow into into something else but in terms of a you know the the society that that we're based uh, that the United States is based on and the the culture of um, you know, rigorous debate and, and disagreement. Um, I, I, I think the answer to that is more speech, not less, but there is an increasing um, portion of, of my generation that, that uh, views it otherwise. So I, ideas are violence. Um, Andrew, did you see much of that thinking at Hillsdale? It was, uh, it was definitely a, a different experience. The, the, the interesting thing about, um, about, the not not just coming out of a, a more conservative um, uh, institutional culture, but the time at which I did um, was because uh, I graduated. I think like like Declan in 2017, which was mm-hmm. so my my junior and senior years um, were <laughs> were the height of the sort of institutional convulsion of the Republican Party um, as as Donald Trump came in and and you know busted up the the joint. Um, and and so there was actually sort of a very different sort of ideological flavor to to maybe the first half and to the second half of my college experience, just because the first half it was like, oh, it's great, you know, everything's very collegial, and and you know, we we, we all sort of ostentatiously have this sense that we're sort of defining ourselves over against the the sort of uh, you know thought police <laughs> uh, caricature we all had in our minds of, of places, places like Harvard. Um, and then when the site, when it came, you know, time for, for Donald Trump to swoop in and, and redefine all of the debates everybody was having about everything, you sort of got a little taste of the, of the opposite flavor where, where yes, you know, it's like more ideas, not less, but also a real big burst of, of, you know, ideas have consequences and, um, and, and the fact that, you know, you can theoretically see bad ideas take hold and 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 get the bit in their teeth and 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 go charging off to do a lot of damage in the world and and you know how do you how do you reconcile um those two things what one thing i wanted to say uh you 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 mentioned declan this this notion that that ideas um ideas can be construed as violence speech can be construed as violence um and i i do think that that's that's a big component of of what we're seeing here um, with, with these stories like the New York times, I don't want to get, you know, too nebulously off into, um, you know, uh, this is just what, what the people are like now. <laughs> um, but, but I think, I think another component specifically of stories like this is it isn't just 
um, it isn't just this matter of of a shrinking of um, acceptable horizons for for thoughts and ideas and speech, uh, specifically speech, because this is in a, in a media context. So there's a little bit of a distinction there too. But it's also it also has to do with um, the way that I think a lot of people in in our generation visualize sort of what what their calling is. You know what 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 their role is supposed to be in institutions um because i and this is perhaps even a bigger shift than anything anything sort of in in their in their larger ideology about the way the world should work but it's um you know rather than um you know thinking that you're you're coming out of school and going into an institution going into a workplace what have you and and just sort of like plugging in and sort of subordinating yourself um to the mission of that of that workplace like 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 maybe maybe you operate agency you know in terms of picking a field or in terms of you know deciding where you're going to work you're going to go to go to work somewhere that has you know I- ideological uh, that that is simpatico with you on, on that sort of thing but but that you sort of very self-consciously see yourself as as a part of that institution and i think a big part of um what has shifted ideologically and and we totally saw this at at the times um is is that a lot of young people because they they have such such a strong sense that um that the 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 existing um institutional structure is is so corrupted by by all of these systemic issues um they 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 feel as though the duty that they have to the institution itself is sometimes rather than subordinating themselves sort of to the structure and, and, and going along with that, it's, it's doing this, this sort of radical speak truth to power shakeup sort of thing where, where sort of by, even though they're sort of all relatively low on the institutional ladder by sort of banding together, they can, they can, uh, shake things up and, and, and they, they, they think they're, you know, that they're doing a service to the New York times by, by, by doing that, right? So it's this just a sort of an interesting ideological wrinkle, not just about the way they think about the world, but the way they think about themselves and, and their role. Yeah. I mean, none of this is particularly new, um, I would say. I mean, even when I was, I mean, this is a long, long time ago when I was back in, in school, um, in grad school, I went to Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. I had a professor. I went there because I wanted to improve my my writing. Uh, I certainly did not go there to have big ideological battles. And where I could, I tried to avoid them so that I could focus on my writing. But the ideological battles seemed to find me, um, and I'm sure I I'm sure I bear some some of the blame for that because I'm if a professor said something ridiculous, I'm not. That was never the kind to kind of sit back and not say anything. But I remember um, a, a confrontation I had in a sports journalism class um, that I took with uh, uh, someone who was then a senior editor at Sports Illustrated magazine, a guy named Sandy Padway. And we had, he had had in a guest speaker who had made some, some told us about um, her experience coaching both men's and women's basketball teams. And Padway brought her in as a, as a, a breaker of the glass ceilings. And she was, it was very, she was very interesting and, and, and inspiring to listen to, but she made several points that didn't sort of fit the narrative he was trying to, to push on us. And I, I raised some questions about those. And in the middle of class, this professor raised his voice, told me I was being ridiculous and told me to shut up. Said, if you think you're making a point, you haven't. 
told me to shut up. And it was, you know, it was one of those moments where I, you couldn't quite believe what you were hearing. Am I, am I at this Ivy League institution taking a class on journalism where literally the goal is to ask the hard questions and I'm being told I can't ask questions. I'm being told I can't think a certain way. Uh, and it was a moment and we it became a, a bit of a thing. I mean, we had to talk to the administrators about it and, and it became a thing. But it, but it seems to me, based on, on those experiences I had and, and others, that back in, in my day, uh, a lot of this was driven by faculty and administrators. It really was much more of a top-down political correctness phenomenon. And that's what we mm -hmm. called it at the time. That's what we talked about. Is that still the case or is it now something that's much more driven from the ground up? No, it's, it's, it's the ground up. Um, you know, while I was there, there were pl plenty of, of, of movements to, to fire faculty, to, um, to, to oust people from positions that they held because, um, of a, of a donation that they had made 20 years ago or, um, you know, the, the, uh, there, there were calls to um, uh, Roger Porter, who was a um, an advisor to, I, I believe, every president uh, since mm -hmm. since Gerald Ford was was a uh, a faculty dean of one of the the upperclassmen houses, and um, because he was conservative, they uh, there was there was a push to get him removed from that position because. As, as faculty dean, he wouldn't be able to be as supportive to to the student body that that he was um, in, intended to serve, and and so it there there definitely is a a kind of a bottom up groundswell approach here, where I think kind of like we did see at the New York Times that there there is this generational divide um, is, that kind of <laughs> I, I think some of the some of the older generation, the faculty are are looking at at kind of the the culture that's been created and like oh wait 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 not not us just you know uh, focus focus your fire elsewhere but um, you know there there is kind of um, that that impulse and and I was looking back to I wrote uh, wrote a column about what what it was like to to be conservative at, at Harvard back in 2015 um, and and I wrote that. I was so grateful for the experience because it prevented me from um, putting up my own echo chamber, um, and I was constantly having to have these debates and constantly having to um, uh, defend what I believed in. And 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 in the course of that, you know, I found out that I, I believed in a lot of stupid things, but it also sharpened my arguments um, of of what I did believe, and I was kind of forced to um, actually think about why it was that I believed certain things and why, why I think that free markets and, and free enterprise are, are so, so, uh, pivotal. And I, and I think that that's an experience that all too often people aren't having on the right and on the left. I think, you know, there are people surround themselves on the internet and in real life, increasingly, um, geographically with, with people who think like they do. And so when they're confronted with a, you know, um, an outside projectile, like you can consider the Tom Cotton op-ed in the New York Times, you know, they just want to send it back where it came and not grapple with it and not, you know, we we have our, um, you know, we have our bubble, things are good here and, and let's just 
focus on that. But then at the same time, you know, you get the these people on on the right that do the exact same thing with any criticism of the president or any um, any focus on something other than other than media bias. You know, it's so um, I, I think it's a it's a dual spectrum problem. Political correctness is by far not only a a liberal issue. You know, we're the, the things that are deemed political and the things that are deemed um, uh, that are that are deemed um, you know beyond the pale are different on both sides. But but there are you know you can we've seen in in you know just in our little world of conservative media that um, you can be quote unquote canceled for having the wrong opinion about Trump or. Um, um, so I, 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 all that to say, yes, I do think it's a problem, but it's a problem increasingly on both sides. And I think it, it has a lot to do with echo chambers and, and kind of self-isolation, um, as much as it does about, about generations. If I could just, um, j- jump in to, to say one thing, two things, actually, F- first about, um, what, what you were saying before about the, the shift in institutional power, um, from, from you know the the institutional people uh, increasingly to the people that they're around and teaching and you know it, you can you can sort of half jokingly but 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 not entirely jokingly sort of talk about um how it's it's essentially every every faculty members at every institution their 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 primary goal is like to survive all of their student interactions you know like through through a given year and if they do that then everything else is secondary to that um and 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 i i think one one big reason why it's it's important to point out why why that is 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 not just ideological change but also technological change. Um, the huge 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 new weapon that that you know young ideologues have now that they didn't before um, is an enormous base of fellow um, travelers uh, on the internet. Where where you know if if um if if there's some something that some faculty member at your school does, uh, that's, that's, that you consider to be outrageous. You don't just have like your other sort of like fellow school radicals that you can tap into in order to like focus outrage on that guy. If you can, you can throw it out on the internet. And if it's the most outrageous, um, you know, if if it's the, the most egregious violation of, of social, social justice or what have you occurring that week, you can, you know, get the entire nation's worth of of young fellow traveler ideologues to to focus fire on on that for for a day or two, which can be, you know, very disconcerting for the person who is who is, uh, you know, under that magnifying glass. So I, I think that's that's a that's a relatively new thing um, that that we haven't really encountered before. And then completely different point to going to what you were saying about echo chambers. Um, I I I don't know. I've I've always had maybe a, a slightly different. Um, sensation about echo chambers probably because like i like we've talked about i went to a school where i am constantly being accused of having gone to an ideological echo chamber i uh, and that that was not really my my experience of going to a you know a, a conservative college i think you know i i did not expect this to happen but honestly i i went into going to a place like hillsdale a lot more ideologically committed to such things as free markets and free enterprise than i than i came out um <laughs> came out with sort of a more sort of conflicted and 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 um irritatingly like unsettled view of 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 those things um but but anyway i I, it is it is important to say that like i i think a lot of conservative students in particular um go through college with 
in, in these incredibly antagonistic institutions, right? Um, where where they they feel like they're fighting for every inch of 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 what of of what they they think are you know their 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 core beliefs, and they think that you know all the people around them would sort of tear them to shreds if they didn't like defend 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 and really force themselves to be taken seriously. And you're right that 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 sharpens people that 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 um in in some sense refines their beliefs, but it also really hardens people. I think, and I, I think that one of the one of the crises of young conservatism in particular, um, you know, we, we, we talk about this, this knee jerk need that, that so many young people in, in the movement have to, you know, trigger the libs, um, to be, to be sort of like ferociously unapologetic for even relatively gross views. And I think a lot of it comes out of, of this, this corresponding campus, um, you know, this, this campus, um, disenfranchisement culture where, 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 where you, you don't really feel like you have the ability to sort of freely, um, work your way through your ideas because it's such a minefield and that, 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 so that you, you really just retreat back onto, um, onto what, what you consider to be ideologically, ideologically solid and stable ground and, and just, just sort of build yourself up a, a, a fortress against cancellation, or you go completely the opposite direction and you, and you set and you declare, the whole, you know, the whole possibility of cancellation to just not concern you at all. And you're, you're, um, antagonistic and, and outrageous for the sake of being antagonistic and outrageous. And you see that as a virtue in and of itself, because you're really sort of striking a blow against, against campus censorship and things like that. And then you really fall off the deep end into all sorts of, um, views that, that yes, are, are reprehensible to a, to a cancel culture, quote unquote, that you find reprehensible, but also are just reprehensible beliefs on their own terms. And you have no, no sort of, uh, you know, mooring in a community at, at all at that point that would help sort of pull you back from, from those beliefs. So it's, I think that's, that's also a, a real challenge for young conservatives that, that, that we should think about and, and, and grapple with ourselves. Well, I think that's, I think that's a really key point. I mean, one of the things that, that I'm probably guilty of as I look back over the past 20 years is, you know, we, we would hear stories. Um, and I worked in, in journalism and academia before I went um, and got my degree and started working in, in day-to-day journalism and, and working as a reporter. And I think as as we heard, as I heard these stories about safe spaces and and all of the accommodations made for the the new woke um, students on campus, I think I was probably more dismissive than I should have been because I thought this is we all went through this. I mean, I went through this. This is sort of what college is like, of course, the, the faculty and administrators are liberal. Of course, you're going to be challenged. Of course, conservatives are, are um, not treated well. Their ideas aren't taken seriously. And it, it seems to me now in retrospect that, it's, that, that something very different was happening. And this was much more of a student-led um, phenomenon, taking advantage of the sympathies, the ideological sympathies of professors and finding ways to declare when certain ideas are just off limits. And I, I think what we're in, in engaged in right now um, on both sides, as, as you both say, is just a giant line drawing exercise, right? Because there are, I mean, you know, if, if I think about the way that we run the dispatch, 
There are pieces we wouldn't run at the district. We don't run everything. Right. You know, if right. I got a if I got a submission from Milo Yiannopoulos making you know alt right or racist arguments, we're not running that at the dispatch. So we we all make these kinds of choices. I think the question is where do you draw the line and and what this new sort of woke culture is doing moving now from universities to to the media is making shrinking the uh, availability of what's permissible to say and to argue. I mean, I didn't agree with with uh, the main argument in the Tom Cotton op-ed, um, but I just can't imagine how it could be the kind of op-ed that the New York Times would want to retract or wouldn't publish. And the Times has, in the, the days since, come up with all sorts of reasons as to why the piece never should have run and continues to to hint at widespread factual inaccuracies in, in the piece. But I will note, as of uh, last night, Thursday evening, I believe, the Times had not run a correction. They, they posted a 300-word explanation of the piece, suggesting that there were things that were wrong in the piece. But when the Times gets something provably and demonstrably wrong, it runs a correction and has not yet run a correction. Um, I, I just wonder if this, if this to go back to the, the point that you were making, Andrew, on, on this being uh, something that is increasingly uh, a problem on both sides, that you have this, this young, woke right reacting to this culture, this growing phenomenon by saying, in effect, you're going to do that your way, we're going to do it our way. And everybody climbs deeper into their own into their own silo. I, I want to read for you a short passage of what uh, of something that David French, our colleague, wrote in his newsletter yesterday, making exactly this point. David wrote, it's vitally important to recognize that America faces two culture wars. Yes, there are still the old battles over abortion, religious liberty, free speech, and gun rights. But there's a new struggle between those forces, left and right, who seek to preserve America's fundamental classical liberal values, including respect for pluralism, decency, and the foundational protections of the Bill of Rights, and illiberal opponents, left and right, who would sweep all that away for the sake of social justice, quote-unquote, or the highest good, or simply for a man named Donald Trump. Is that is that what we're seeing today take place in our political debates across the country? So I, I, I copy edited that I copy edited that piece and uh, I wanted to but did not because I was only copy editing it and uh, and I didn't want to speak for David. But I, I, I thought if, if I had written that, I might have I might have said um, like for the sake of Donald Trump. Instead of because it's not just it's not just people who are doing who are, you know, collapsing everything to be about Trump out of loyalty to him who are who are the problem um, because he's he and sorry if this is not exactly where, where you were want, wanting to go with this. But I do think it's interesting how he he sort of poisons every conversation he's a part of, um, not 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 exactly out of anything that he does, but just because of who he is and, and the way he re- sort of reshapes all debates to be about him and, and, and reshapes all debates um, to be sort of a priori polarized uh, and, and, and un, um, unrecon- irre- irreconcilable uh, in, in that way. I, uh, 
I think that's obviously an, an unfortunate moment of of the uh, an unfortunate uh, fact about the present moment. Uh, but I think obviously the, the the causes of that he he he's a little more symptomatic perhaps than 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 being the the cause of of those irreconcilabilities. Yeah, there's uh, let me let me read one more um, passage that hasn't gotten I think the attention that it probably should have. Um, remember back in October. Barack Obama was doing it, held a, um, a summit on youth activism at the Obama Foundation. And he took questions from the audience and, and received some questions about activism and, and what youth activism and, and organizing means. And Obama, was surprising to me, actually made a, a strikingly strong case against all of this uh, phenomenon on the left. He said, the, this idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. People you are, you are fighting may love their kids and share certain things with you. Um, this was it was an interesting moment that Obama has uh, the, sort of spoke out ag- against this this rising wokeism on the left and cancel culture. But I wonder if, if you think that the fact that somebody like Barack Obama could come out and say that so strongly and really not make much difference. I mean, this, the phenomenon is as strong as it ever has been, as we've seen in, in, in recent days. Does that tell you that this is kind of uh, an inexorable wave toward additional cancellations, towards greater wokeness, and toward the kind of reactions that we're seeing from the right, which mimic what we're seeing on the left? Declan? Yeah. Um, I, I, I've been, you know, I, I remember being pleasantly surprised by by that comment from, from president Obama. And, um, you know, I, I've tried to do some thinking about kind of why, why this is the case, why, how we've gotten here. And I do, I do think that, um, you know, I do think that technology and, and social media has plays an enormous role in it because, you know, as, as he said, um, uh, the, nobody, nobody is perfect. Nobody is, um, without fault, but with with social media, you can create your own communities. You know, they're to varying de- sizes and to varying degrees, where everybody does feel that they have no quote unquote fault within that community, or where everybody within that community abides by um, you know the same set of values, the same and the same uh, modus operandi, and and you know that. That wouldn't have been possible, uh, you know, before before social media. You 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 knew the people that you lived near, and you knew your neighbors, and you knew um, uh, the people that you went to school with, and who your kids played with. And um, you know, now you can almost uh, construct this own reality that exists online, not um, in you know your everyday life, but you can construct this reality where. Yes, everybody who I want to surround myself with, and and more importantly, who I want to signal that I am alike and signal that I I think closely to, 
we are going to all abide by this set of standards and we are, and I can create a community where that is kind of um, what we, what we live by. And so, um, you know, I, I think that that is a a very um, significant development in kind of how we interact as, as humans. And, and, and with, you know, with the advent of social media, you also get new voices at, at, in these conversations that for so long, we're not listened to, we're not heard. You know, we, the, the example of the past month has been, and not even just the past month, but past five years is cell phone videos. And, and you know, we, we see now these interactions that young black men are having with, with police officers that, you know, too often for the past century or more, um, you know, we, we saw the initial statement that the Minneapolis Police Department put out. It was, you know, a, a, a man died, um, no no weapon was used. Um, uh, you know, I, I can go, go back and read it, but the police lied about, about what happened and, and yeah. what, and, and, you know, and for so long, that was the accepted narrative. That was, okay, you know, that, that's what happened. Now with social media and with cameras and with, um, you know, black men are able to tell the other side of that story. And so the, that reality, I think, plays into a lot of these conversations is that this is not just the accepted narrative of the past hundred years. There are now dozens of narratives that are coming to the surface that weren't part of that official story for, of, of America for so long. And so it's, it's kind of a harsh clash to have all of these different perspectives, um, coming to, coming to the fore all at once. Um, but I, you know, it, it is important to have those conversations. And I think that that definitely plays a, a contributing role in, in kind of how we're thinking about a lot of these conversations. And I think the, 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 maybe the key point there is, is the, the way that what, what, what you, what you call sort of the established narrative, maybe the establishment narrative, um, sort of a, one, one of the big, um, sort of commonalities across a whole lot of, whole lot of different types of, of ideological issues, um, over the past five years or the past 10 years or the past large number of years has been the failure of those institutional narratives and the, the, the increasing lack of trust for, for, you know, the, the acceptable version of the story. And I think that that plays, uh, uh, maybe a a bigger role in, in all these, you know, conversations about the great wokening of America and, and, and these things, um, than, than we necessarily give it credit for, because when I, I think we'd all agree, uh, that, that these, this this sort of woke woke discourse is relatively nihilistic ideologically. It's it's all really about just just the operation of power um, and, and ideally toward some some productive end. I mean, the people who are who are operating the power this way hope that it will lead to a um, a positive reconstruction of society. But it is just pretty nakedly um, a, a weaponization of, of of discourse toward toward you know. Serve, serving ends of power. So it's nihilistic in that way. Um, but, but I think that the important thing to realize is that nihilistic ideologies don't take off unless the, the established, um, you know, prevailing previous ideology was already sort of atrophied and moth-eaten and, and defective in a lot of ways. And I think that, for instance, you, if, if looking at something like the Tom Cotton op-ed, people don't, people don't look at, uh, you, 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 you don't have a, a powerful movement um, to cancel something like an op-ed unless you're already in a culture where, where op-eds and, and, and you know, media in general are, are largely not seen as, as people, you know, 
trying to work toward the truth together, trying to like uh, communicate with one another and instruct one another. A lot of people already, you know, prior to Tom Cotton's op-ed, really just see op-eds as um, as another weaponization of power. It's just people putting out press releases for their for their political um, leanings, for their for their preferred narratives, in order to give those narratives more heft. It's not a matter of education; it's a matter of largely propaganda. And a lot of people see it that way. And when you're when you already see a media culture um, as as functioning in in that way, then you are a lot more susceptible to be like, well, yeah, I don't want the really bad ideas to to get that preferential treatment in the most powerful newspaper in America. You know, I don't if if, if the only if the only thing op eds are doing, if the only thing you know any any media is doing is is pushing the balance of power one way or another, then of course you're gonna you're gonna object when when it pushes the balance of power in ways that you see as as really dangerous and wrong. Um, so I think I think y- you ha- there's this danger um, when when you talk about the great wokening or, or whatever. Um, of of sort of falling back into this defensive crouch where you're like, and this is why everybody just needs to realize how good things were before this happened. Um, but I, I think you you really do have to grapple with the ways in which people found the prevailing order previously of, uh, you know, pluralism, liberalism, all these sorts of things, the ways in which that had already begun to go wrong and and thus opened the door for this this movement that I think we all correctly, I would say because we all believe it to be that um find so so disturbing yeah i mean i, I think that the the real question we'll see this play out um in the next several months and in, in the next few years is whether the times by giving into the demands of the super woke crowd has actually incentivized that very behavior and i would argue that the answer is almost certain to be yes which i think um, makes more likely the the continuation of this kind of talking past one another of the, of the the shouting past one another rather than trying to to actually have a conversation or understand or or think about the way we think. Um, let me let me in our remaining just few minutes here. Um, let me shift to discuss what I think of the political manifestations of exactly what we are have been talking about here uh, in some respects. And you each had, uh, I think, very good standalone pieces this week for the website. Um, Andrew on um, a a band of uh, Trump super fans, the, the, the front row Joes who travel around the country and go to Trump rallies and have kind of created their own um, internal subgroup that does this and they're friends and they care about one another. And, and that's very, that was a very interesting piece. And, and Declan, you had a piece uh, that ran this morning, Friday morning on this empathy gap that uh, exists between Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump in the polling. And I think in some ways, you know, if, if, if you want to talk about uh, what, what's happening here, Andrew, Donald Trump has this core loyal uh, base that really can't be uh, affected. They, they, you know, his his way of making the point was the uh, was the the infamous uh, that I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they'd still be with me. Well, we've seen now many of those moments that he was imagining, and they have, in fact stuck with him. They're every bit as loyal as they have ever have been. And that gives him 
I think, a, a pretty high ceiling from which to operate politically. At the same time, Declan, to the point that you wrote this morning, because he he doesn't do a great job of um, showing empathy, that I think among among other reasons is is why he has a relatively uh, high, I'm sorry high ceiling and high floor and low ceiling. He's not able to grow his his coalition much beyond this this core base. Um, Andrew, why don't you tell us how you came in touch with this group of Trump loyalists and what you learned when you talked to them? Yeah, uh, well, so the the getting in touch with them was easy because uh, I I wanted to write a piece about about rallies um, and what's what's happening, uh, what Trump fans are going to do when he when he resumes them, uh, which he's doing, uh, I believe, next week. And, uh, and there just happens to be this, this community that, that had been, that I'd previously read news reports about, um, you know, that, that goes to all his rallies or at least all the ones they can get to and camps out for days, uh, in, in line in order to be able to get the best seats in the house and interact with, you know, the, the teleprompter guy or what have you. They got, I mean, it's a, it's a very strange hobby, but they're, they're really into it. Um, and so I just, I found previous press reports of those people, tracked them down on Facebook. They were happy to talk. Um, they like being written about, they like being a little bit no- notorious. Um, and, and they were, they were, you know, right, right there, right, ready to get, get back into the rallies. They were very enthusiastic about it. Um, to specifically to, to your point about the, the sort of, um, impermeability of, of their support for, for the president. I think there's a few things going on there. Um, one is, one is just a question of sort of obviously media echo chamber, uh, part of the reason why people don't, um, why the bad behavior of the president doesn't impact them is because they just don't know about it or they're, it's explained away by the time it, by the time it actually reaches them. It's just a question of actual access to, to knowledge. Um, the, the second thing is, and I get into this a lot in, in the piece, um, is, uh, question of community, right? I mean, I think a lot of Trump supporters, like like many people who are supporters of of, of something countercultural or that goes against the prevailing um, prevailing narrative, uh, they they band together specifically around the fact that they are all sort of subverting that. I mean, that that's actually like culturally bonding to them. I actually, when I was talking to these guys, I kept having flashbacks to a piece I wrote for the Weekly Standard in in 2017 when I went to the Juggalo March in 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 Washington because it was like it was a very similar thing. It's like all the people out there think we're idiots and uh, have no taste. But we know that we're not idiots, and we don't have. And what no are taste what are juggalos? Oh, sorry. Yeah, they're well. Okay, yeah. So that's that's a that's a real curveball. Uh, fans <laughs> of fans of the band, uh, the Insane Clown Posse. It's like this really rabid, uh, really rabid fan group of this awful, awful band. Um, but but who 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 have a much tighter community than than most uh, bands fan bases do, precisely because the band is so bad and so universally sort of reviled. Um, that, that they have, they have that going for them. You know, it's like you're, if, if, if you're around another juggalo, then like you, you know, your bros because, uh, specifically because, uh, people who aren't juggalos think you're so strange. Um, and, I, and it was honestly is a very similar, very similar thing for some of these like really intense Trump fans. Like, like if, like if, if you are a front row Joe, if you're camping out at one of these events, um, you know, that like, either you get it or you don't. Right. <laughs> and it's like, it's like if, if, if you're in, you're really in and they're, they're really, really tight knit. They're really close. I mean, they, they talk constantly. There aren't that many of them. I think I, I talked to eight. There's probably, you know, 
uh, well, it's it's not like there's not like you, you pay dues. It's not like there's a, a registrar <laughs> a register of them. But uh, uh, but yeah, I mean they they're like each other's best friends now, and they live. And yet there are some striking differences between them, particularly on some of the the big issues of the day. I mean, obviously, when when you talk about going uh, starting rallies again, there are now some pretty significant risks in in doing that. And the the Trump campaign when it announced this rally uh, for next week in Tulsa, Oklahoma, had at the bottom of the announcement sort of a disclaimer saying, if you go to this rally, you can't hold us responsible if you contract uh, this Um, COVID-19. They didn't all see eye to eye on COVID-19 and on mask wearing and, and these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely, definitely real division. I had one woman I talked to who, who had been trying to be very careful about the masks. Um, a couple, uh, n- another who was extremely scornful and dismissive of the whole concept of masks. Um, I, I think all of them were were in agreement that like you shouldn't go out and hassle people, hassle like businesses in your community. Um, I had, I didn't get it into the piece, but we had a kind of a fun interaction where where they were all. Uh, kind of trash talking the videos they'd seen going around on social media of people like filming at their grocery store, trying to browbeat them into into letting them in without a mask. And they were like, no, just go to a store that's like not going to make you do that. You know, like, don't be mean <laughs> to the poor guy. Um, uh, yeah, so that that's a that's a real uh, that, th- there are obviously they're not all ideologically simpatico. They're not all strategically simpatico on all of these things. I did think that on, on the point of the Trump campaign, uh, the way they're going about this, I don't I it's really, I mean, it's really gross to me. I, I don't know if I could, if I could imagine a better illustration of the way that, that the, the campaign looks at the base as both, um, as both like very frightening, like they don't want to cross them. They don't want to do anything that's going to make, that's going to rile the base up and just completely expendable, you know? I mean, like, like you, you, you're not, you're not going to ask people to come in and social distance, you're not going to ask people to come in and wear masks because you know that for a lot of those people, that's seen as weak, and you can't you can't appear weak to your people. You can't appeal you can't appear weak to your people, even if appearing weak by doing that, you were protecting your people. You were literally keeping some of them from dying. And 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 it's I mean it's it, it's it's one thing to be like I could shoot. Uh, I could shoot somebody on on Fifth Avenue or whatever I don't remember the avenue, and uh, and 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 I wouldn't lose my supporters. It's kind of another thing to be like, I could shoot you, and you would still support me. You know, like that's and that that's honestly what it kind of feels like with with these with with this this rally. So I don't know. Maybe that's uh, sorry if that's not where you wanted to go with that, but I just I, I cringed. You know, no. And on the other on the other hand, I mean, I think there's there's sort of hypocrisy abounds in in this discussion because on the other hand, you have. You know, many of the very same people who told us for for weeks that we weren't to have contact with anybody outside our 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 hard quarantine bubbles, um, even to you know to to open up your business if you've had a business for for all these years, or to go to a funeral of a loved one, we weren't supposed to interact with people, and yet when it came time to have these protests. All of those considerations by at least some on the left, including prominent politicians who were very aggressively in favor of of the lockdowns, and the quarantines are just thrown out the window. Um, So, you know, they they, too, I think, treat some of their uh, their followers and ideological um, compatriots 
as somewhat expendable in the name of this bigger of this bigger good. Declan, you wrote about what we might regard as the flip side of, of what Andrew describes. I mean, Andrew's piece, I think, did a, a very good job of illustrating um, this community of the, the Trump base, and it really is a community. Um, the, there's the reason that they are so tight knit and and so devoted, I think, is precisely because there is this somewhat subversive element to to what they're doing. And your piece on on this empathy gap um, helps explain, I think, why while that appeals to that core base, it's precisely that sort of subversive element of Trumpism that appeals to that core base. It's also what keeps him from growing that number because other people, um, you know, independent voters and soft Democrats don't find, not only don't find that appealing, they're, they're repelled by that. Is that, is that a fair description? That is a fair description. And, you know, I, I'd been thinking about writing a piece like this for a while. The, the, The polls have kind of borne, borne that empathy gap out for a while, but I, Tuesday morning was when it kind of solidified in my mind when, I was like, okay, I need to, I need to write this piece this week because, you know, uh, on, on Tuesday morning, Joe Biden recorded a video and that was played at the funeral of George Floyd. Um, you know, I, I, he, he said, we know you will never feel the same again to, to George Floyd's family and, and his young daughter. Um, unlike most, you must grieve in public. It's a burden, a burden that is now your purpose. And, you know, it, People on the right, you know, will fairly or not criticize him for being politically opportunistic, for, you know, showing up there um, and and speaking to to that pain. But for most of America, that's what they want politicians to do. They that they they want time words of comfort and in, in times of mass upheaval. And we're, you know, we're we're living through one of the most harrowing periods in, in American recent American history, you know, with the the pandemic, with that Come November, there could be, you know, close to two hundred thousand dead. You know, tens of millions of people are out of work, um, and now and now we're also grappling with, you know, what for a large portion of the country has been de- uh, generations of of racial injustice, and you know, for for Donald Trump and his supporters, um, it, it's fine for for him to be focusing during this period on bashing the media on kind of fanning these various culture war issues around the Confederate monuments and and things like that. But a large portion of the country just wants a leader to uh, speak to the to the pain that they're feeling and and to kind of this this sense of almost nationwide loss. Um, and 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 I as I get to in the piece, this, you know, uh, that is really one of, you know, for, for all his faults as a politician and, and, you know, I think he's wrong on, on several key issues throughout his career, but this is one of Joe Biden's strength is speaking to loss because he has experienced it himself, um, with the, the loss of his wife and young daughter, um, back in the, in the seventies in a, in a car accident. And then his, his son, uh, Bo went to, to brain cancer back in 2015. Um, and, and Biden has, kind of publicly grieved those losses in front of an entire nation that has kind of followed him through that process. Um, and so, you know, the, the New York Times had a great, great piece um, yesterday that was recounting 
all of the uh, eulogies that that Biden has given over the over the course of his career. And it was, um, you know, for, fortuitous timing that that their piece came out a day before mine. But um, it was really, really moving kind of the 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 way that he has channeled his own loss and his own pain into providing comfort to others. And, and um, you know, that that is that may not be what you know, Trump's most hardened fans, what the front row Joes want, but the polling kind of bears out that it is what um, a lot of Americans want right now. I, I look back to to 2016 and, um, you know, Trump was able to get by. It's not that he was seen as incredibly in touch and empathetic in 2016, but neither was Hillary Clinton. And so that was an easy way for him to kind of weather some of, some of those uh, gaps in his... Um, in his persona, and yet there but, was still a pretty significant empathy gap between Trump and yes, Hillary. Yes, yeah. So it was it was nine points in 2016. It has grown to 19 points between Biden and, and Trump. Um, and you know it. And I and I also look back at um, in 2012. There was a, an empathy gap between Romney and Obama. And let me see if I can pull up this. Um, in 2012, Romney won voters who. Uh, cared about sharing their values, about being a strong leader, about having a vision for the future. But he lost um, he lost voters who cared about a, a candidate um, caring about a person like them, about having empathy. And he lost them by 63 points. And that was enough to wipe out his lead in all those other categories. Because ultimately, um, you know, we were in 2012, we were still coming out of the, the Great Recession. There were a lot of people out of work. And and people just didn't feel like Romney was was on their side, and and so um, you know it it didn't matter in 2016 for Trump. Um, I mean, it, it did. He lost the popular vote, and he you know came very very close to in three states to not winning the election. But uh, I think it will matter in in 2020, and I think it will matter more than it than it um, did in in these past elections because we as a country are going to be grappling with so much. Um, loss and kind of, you know, Trump has, not to say that Trump hasn't, you know, uh, commemorated George Floyd in his life. He has, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a point of emphasis with, with him. And so he can say one thing about, uh, about the death. And on a, I, I believe it was after the SpaceX launch, he, he gave kind of a, a speech on a, on a teleprompter um, simultaneously commemorating the life of George Floyd. Um, and and condemning kind of the the more violent riots that have that have, had sprung up at the time, but then you know he <laughs> loses focus and and changes the subject and instead of you know he get he gets criticized in the media for not um, focusing on uh, focusing on the death and instead of just focusing on the death and empathizing he cr- attacks the media for not focusing or for not paying attention to that one time that he did. And so it's kind of this cycle that, um, you know, people just want him to kind of speak to some of these issues that they're feeling. And he just he can do it for a very short period of time and then he loses track. And then he, um, you know, focuses on Antifa provocateurs in Buffalo um, or, uh, you know, Confederate monuments or, or all these other things that he'd rather kind of fight fight on. And so it's. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that the Trump campaign um, yesterday put out a, a, a big statement about how they want um, they want 
TV networks to be airing all of Joe Biden's speeches live in full um, because they think that that will show his kind of um, incompetence or or declining mental state or or, or what have you. Um, But I think think Joe Biden will be very happy to kind of just lie low under the radar and let Trump go on off on his kind of various tangents that, you know, yes, excite his base, but really, really repel um, the the vast, not the vast, but a, a pretty sizable majority of the country. So, yeah, and I think that the, the real question, as it relates to to this this empathy gap, is whether these continue to be the issues that shape right. the election. And I would say, in a normal year, if you if you have these kinds of things that have have driven our thinking on on our politics for the first six months, five six months of the year. Uh, and so dramatically reshaped what the public is thinking about and how we're acting on a day-to-day basis, it would be a sure bet that this is then what would shape the outcome of the election. And yet, because it's 2020, one imagines that there might be many new external (laughs) external factors that that have uh, equal or compelling um, ways of of changing the, the the ways that voters are looking at at these, including things that I think could play to Donald Trump's benefit. I mean, if there right. is some kind of conflagration with Iran, if that if that heats up again and Donald Trump can say, well, I'm the strong one. And Joe Biden gave millions or billions of dollars to the Iranians or or, or there's a, a terrorism question or what have you. I mean, there are other ways in which you can see that some of the things that people look to for Donald Trump or look at as strengths might come back into play far more than they are. Today, when I think the, the the debates are taking place on unfriendly ground for Donald Trump, um, well, thank you both to to Declan and to Andrew for for joining us today. This was an interesting and I think uh, fun discussion in its own way. Um, and thank you all for listening. If you have not subscribed to the podcast, please go and do so. And if you uh, care to give us a a rating that would be helpful in allowing people to discover what we're doing. Stay tuned for upcoming for, for news on upcoming dispatch live events, which are available to dispatch members. And of course, if you are not yet a dispatch member, we would strongly encourage you to go uh, and join us for the last several months of this election and what comes after. Thanks a lot. 